to Jeremiah chapter 4. Jeremiah is that big book after Isaiah, before Lamentations, since we all have a bookmark in Lamentations after COVID. I'm the only one? Okay. Bible jokes, it's so fun. All right, would you stand as I read Jeremiah 4, 1 through 4. If you return Israel, this is the Lord's declaration. You will return to me. If you remove your abhorrent idols from my presence and do not waver, then you can swear as the Lord lives in truth, justice, and righteousness. And then the nations will be blessed by him and will boast in him. For this is what the Lord says to the men of Judah and Jerusalem. Break up the unplowed ground. Do not sow among the thorns. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, men of Judah and residents of Jerusalem. Otherwise, my wrath will break out like fire and burn with no one to extinguish it because of your evil deeds. Let's pray. God, you are good to us. You are good to all. We thank you for this moment and we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is God-breathed, given by inspiration through the power of your Holy Spirit. And we ask now that that same Holy Spirit would come in power to make your word accomplish your will, that it will not go out void, but it will do what you send it to do. So, Lord, would it come and break up the unplowed ground of our hearts and of our minds and of our community That, God, you would cause us to move from being unfeeling to feeling to being dull and lethargic to awakened and alive by the power of your spirit through the power of your word. For your promise accompanies your word. And now, Father, I pray that whatever proceeds from this mouth that is not of you would fall to the floor and remain unheard. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Lord Jesus, you said heaven and earth may pass away, but your word will never pass away. So, Lord, would you speak? Speak, Lord. Speak. Your children are listening. Have mercy in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated or you can keep standing. Regardless, we're going to preach. The prophet Jeremiah is often called the weeping prophet because his oftentimes you look at what he has to say and it is entirely, almost entirely bad news. He is there early um, or depending on how you count B.C., late B.C., before Christ, 626-ish is when he receives his call in chapter 1. And by this point, it's a few years later. And he's, what's experiencing, what's happening in the life of Israel is that the King Josiah was a good king. A good king who was trying to bring religious reforms to the people of Judah and call them back from idolatry into true worship of the true and living God. Because what had happened with God's people is that God's people had begun, had been for years, 
partaking in the false worship of the idols of the nations surrounding them. And it got really, really bad under Manasseh. And then Josiah comes in and he has these great reforms. And it seems like revival is coming. But what most of Jeremiah's message is, is that those that spark of revival, that spark of spiritual fervor does not last. But in fact, the people revert back. It's almost as though King Josiah, who was a good king, an honorable king, in many ways, one of the greatest kings of uh, of Judah and of Israel, that it did not last. And so they revert back to the false worship that was instated by Manasseh. It was a false worship centering on the uh, the Canaanite gods of Baal and Asherah. And it even there was the Israel by this point is even partaking in the, the wickedness of the of worshiping of Molech, where they're offering their own children as human sacrifices through the fire. And you begin to see how far just in that little glimpse, how far the people of Israel, the people of Judah, have departed from the ways of the Lord. They've gone astray. And so by this point in the late 600s BC, the northern kingdom of Israel, remember after Solomon, the kingdom of the Israel splits in two. There's a northern kingdom, there's Israel to the north, and there's Judah to the south. Judah is where Jerusalem is. Uh, so Israel, there's, there's two kingdoms that are some, they're often antagonistic toward one another. They're, they're not the hugest fans of each other. The northern kingdom even sets up an alternative Jerusalem in Samaria. They pursue idols and it's a whole thing. It's a whole just train wreck up there. So much so that God brings the Assyrian Empire. I know we're hitting it hard and heavy because I'm trying to get somewhere, but I want you to have this thing going on, okay? God brings the Assyrian Empire and crushes Israel, the northern kingdom, and they are removed into exile around 722, 700 BC. So, um, excuse me, Jeremiah is preaching this. He's, he's, He's prophesying these words over a century later. He's prophesying these things a century later. And part of it is that as he is prophesying in Judah, telling them that their wickedness is overflowing the brim and that what God did to Israel, the northern kingdom, he's going to do to the southern kingdom. He's going to bring Babylon. He's going to bring Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to bring in this foreign army with their foreign gods and they're going to trample on Jerusalem. They're going to tear down the walls, tear down the temple and burn it all because of the wickedness of his people. But before then, Jeremiah continues to summon them, saying, if you would just return, if you would just turn from your sin and trust in the Lord, if you would renew your covenant bound with the Lord who has rescued you and made you a people. But as he preaches to Judah, we learn that they go through these cycles of what what we might call false repentance. It's, it's showcased earlier in, the, in chapter 3, in chapter 3, verse 10. Again, in spite of all this, her treacherous sister, talking about sister Israel, Judah, he's talking about northern kingdom, southern kingdom. Yet in spite of all this, her treacherous sister Judah didn't return to me with her, with her heart only in pretense. This is the Lord's declaration. So Judah would put on the show of repentance. 
They would, they would have the festivals and they would have temple worship and they would go through the religious things all the while. As soon as they left the temple, they would begin worshiping Baal. As soon as they left the temple, they would be offering up their children to Molech. That there was a fundamental disconnect between what happened in their worship of Yahweh, the one true living covenantal God who had rescued them out of Egypt, who had saved them. There was a fundamental difference between their worship of him and their life, if you will, the rest of the week. Or the rest of the year. That they were experts at jumping through religious hoops. They could use the right lingo. They had learned to write Bible verses. And yet their repentance was in pretense. It was a false repentance. Repentance being a leaving of sin and coming back to God. They would do that, but they would never leave off their sin. They would come and wail and moan when things didn't go well out there. And they would come to God and say, and say, we're so sorry, I can't believe we did this. And then as soon as they felt like they had done enough religious penance, they would go back and do the same thing over again. That, my friends, is false repentance. A refusal to leave off of sin and have God. When you love sin more than you love Jesus, you're going to continue to go back to your sin and continue to say, Jesus, forgive me. So there's this issue of false repentance, but that might sound heavy and judgmental, maybe. But what you need to see is that it says, if you are verse first verse, if you return Israel. We kind of jumped into a section. It's the beginning of a chapter, but then we jumped into a section where God is through the prophet Isaiah. It's not Isaiah. It's Jeremiah. (laughs) Totally different guys. Uh, That through Jeremiah, God is addressing not right, right here in verse one. He's not addressing Judah. He is addressing Israel who has been taken into exile for over a hundred years at this point. The invitation to repentance, the invitation to return to Jesus or to come to Jesus has no expiration date as long as you are living. I don't care where you've strayed. I don't care where you've gone. I don't care what you've done. The Lord will receive you back if you come with a clean, pure heart saying, I need Jesus. None of y'all are a century old. You act like it sometimes, but you're not. You're not that old. But for a century, these people have been, they've been taken to Susa and Assyria and Damascus. They've been removed from their land. And yet God says to them, if you would return. And this is a culmination of a three series of return on faithful Israel. Verse 12 of chapter 3. Return you faithless children in chapter 3 verse 14. Return and return and return. If you would repent and come to me. You would have new life. And this models exactly what we see in the New Testament. Acts chapter 3, Peter's sermon. Repent and experience times of refreshing in the presence of the Lord. But there cannot be. There cannot be, or there ought not be, better said. There ought not be a fundamental disconnect from your church life and your regular life. There should not be a fundamental disconnect from that which is sacred in your life and that which is quote-unquote secular in your life. 
Maybe another way to say this. If Jesus is Lord today of your life, then he must be your Lord tomorrow. And he must be your Lord on Saturday morning and on Friday night and Saturday night and Thursday at 2 p.m., whatever, that he's Lord. But what was getting Judah in trouble? Now, it's very dramatic, right? These offering children up a fire. You're thinking, I never would do such a thing. I hope not. Um, If you would return. And it's so easy to look at the sins of Judah and look at the sins of Israel and say, I'm not that bad. And I'm not here. I'm not going to throw the darts out and hoping I hit your personal sin. Okay. Because you've all got one. We've all struggled with things. But what I am saying twofold is that if your life looks fundamentally different today than it will tomorrow in the sense of what you are caring about, what your greatest love is, what your priorities are, then do not consider yourself better than Judah and Israel and consider their end or at least consider their exile. Consider the judgment of God that came on the people of God. Yes, the judgment of God goes on all the the ungodly, unfaithful, unbelieving nations. But the judgment of God comes upon his covenant people. His people. Israel. Judah. Jerusalem. His temple. It comes upon them. If you return, this is the Lord's declaration. This is what the Lord says. You will return to me. The invitation of repentance is not not just, hey, I need to get back to church. Hey, I need to get back into Sunday school. I need to get back to Wednesday nights. I need to get back to this. I need to get back to that. I need to get back to that. No, the invitation of repentance is that you come back to Jesus. All of those things might be avenues of your approach back to Jesus. And many of them should be avenues of your approach to Jesus. But it is not enough for you simply to say, I need to be more religious-y. I need to get my religious um, account back up and running where I'm I'm giving my money and I'm showing up in the pew and I'm, I'm serving on committees. I need to get back to that. No, if you are walking astray, be worried about, be concerned about returning to Jesus. Because it's not enough. They were doing all the festivals, sort of. They were all corrupted and messed up. They were in the temple. They were offering sacrifices. And yet they refused to obey God when they left. If you return, you will return to me. Come to me, God says. Bend your knees, bow your hearts, return to me. Don't return to activities. Don't return to stuff. Don't return to people, return to me. And if this is the invitation of the post-COVID church, here it is. Don't just come back to church, come back to Jesus. There are too many people right now who have have this this gap. That That was a gap when we were out for a few months, and then they kind of got comfortable, and they filled in a gap in their schedule with something else. And my invitation to you isn't, hey, just come back to church. My invitation is to come back to Jesus. 
Come back to Jesus. But notice the if-then nature of this invitation. There's ifs and there's a consequence. There are a result. There's if and there's then. If you return, you will return to me. If you remove your abhorrent idols. This repentance that the Lord is calling us to is necessarily a real repentance. And what we're beginning to see is that these are fundamental building blocks of true, real repentance. And that if we long for revival and we long for new days and renewal and all these sorts of things for our church and for our community and for our nation, dear ones, it won't happen without repentance. Just crickets. Repentance rarely gets amens, but you need to hear it anyway. And all of us, no matter where you are today, we always have room for repentance. Yes, Lord. All of us have room for it. None of us have arrived at perfection. None of us have arrived at saying, oh, I've certainly finally got rid of all that sin stuff. Perfection is the way. Till glory. No, you will not be through with sin until you are in glory. And while you are in this flesh, while you are in this fallen world, beset by Satan, you will have to repent. And what you begin to see is that repentance is not, is not the crippling judgment of the law, but repentance is the invitation of God's grace. Leave off your bankrupt destructive way of life and return to me, the Lord says. And that requires that we get rid of the idols that creep up in us. Now, our idols might not be Asherah and Baal, but I promise you we've got them. Whether they be the the ones that you want to list off quickly about money and possessions and relationships whether it's college football or and maybe if you're in, a, in the NFL football or some other sport. Maybe it's, it looks like a, a donkey or an elephant. Maybe it's your political persuasions. I read a devastating article while I was at the beach. It was not good beach reading. It just made me sad. And I don't have the stats. But... It was a, this article, and it was, a, it was a study of Christians, evangelical Christians, and that they would listen more to conservative media than they were their own pastors. And I want to be like, no way, but I can begin to see it. And I'm not, I'm not, all, I'm not like your Facebook patrol, but I'm Facebook friends with some people. Now, don't go unfriend me, okay? <laughs> Hurt my feelings. But I see, Right? And, and you, I mean, go, go, look at your, go look at how you spend your time. Go look at how you spend your money. And go look at what you post on social media and say, these are my priorities. I'm not saying that we should be disinterested in politics. But dear ones, if you expect that the kingdom of God is going to come through your vote, you are badly mistaken. Because you consider what happened with Right here, with Judah and Israel, they had a marriage, if you will, if you just imagine, there was a marriage between church and state. And yet they messed it up. It didn't help them very much. 
Our, we have to identify our idols and we must be vigilant that we are idol snipers. John Owen, who's one of my favorite theologians, he's also a member of the church, but it's a different John Owen. I like to point out that to him. Anyways, um, John Owen was a, probably the best uh, of, the, of the Puritan theologians. And he said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. What you have to understand is that all of those idols I've just listed are rather innocuous and things that you bump into every day. You bump into sports, you bump into people, you bump into your bank account, you bump into your work, you bump into your family, you bump into your house. All those things are normal parts of life, but when they become disordered and they become that for which you live and that for which you serve and spend and sacrifice, if those things are your greatest priority... Saying, I can give up the worship of the Lord on the Lord's day for those things all the time. Then we've, boom, crosshairs, idle. And you need a reassessment of priority. If you believe that enough, you, just, you get enough of Jesus while I'm up here ranting my head off. Which is not, I'm trying not to, but I'm. If you think that's enough, your priorities are off. And we need to begin to see them. And our idols might be something a little bit more insidious or sneaky, like like comfort. Like it's out of our realm to consider that the Lord might call us to do something uncomfortable. Like have that awkward conversation with your neighbor about Jesus. That's, That's uncomfortable. You might not know this, but I'm naturally wired as an introvert. So by the time I get home, I just want to... You know, like hide. I can't have have three kids and a wonderful wife, right, that need me. And then I have neighbors. I don't do a great job, but I'm trying. But to have that awkward conversation. Or he might be calling you as something so uncomfortable as to uproot your family, sell all that you have and follow him to the nations. That's not just for the people out there. I had this conversation re- recently. I don't want to take all day. Plenty of times. I had all this, this conversation recently with, I think it was, I don't know who, with whom I was speaking. But it was a bunch of non-pastors. And I said, you guys are better poised with your gifts, your talents, your education, and your, and your quote-unquote secular things that you do. You are better poised to take the gospel to the na- nations than me. When I go to somewhere that's kind of squirrely for, for, you know, when I have to write down, what's your occupation? And you write, I have to write on their pastor. I'm not going to lie. I remember uh, the last time I was in China. Hopefully it's not the last time ever, but it was the last time I was in China. I've only been twice. I'm not like some super world traveler guy, but um, we were distributing Bibles and we were out and it was like negative 40 outside. It was so cold. It's going to be your life, Kevin. Uh, it was so, because anyways, it was super cold. And we were, I was with another pastor and we were in a hotel room and we had just gotten in. And the way it works, in, at least where we were in China that day, is that they keep your passports at the front desk. And there, none of the, there's no locks on the doors. You don't have like a room. You don't get the privacy. And, uh, or anyways, so all of a sudden we have... These police officers, these Chinese police officers burst in our door. 
And to this day, it was the, and this, this is the tall, biggest Chinese man I've ever seen in my life. I never saw Yao Ming in person, but this dude was huge. And he was just like huge. And, uh, and, they, and, and they immediately are speaking to us in Chinese, and I don't know Chinese. Um, but they, want, they have a copy of our passport, and they want us to write down who, you know, for, like, this is who we are, this is what you do, um, whatever, this is where you're from, whatever else. So I had to write down, Jacob Helsley, pastor. At that time, uh, right, Pineview Baptist Church, Blythewood, South, South Carolina. Um, but for you, you could write down, I'm an IT professional at blah, 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 or whatever else you do, insurance salesman, I don't know. Uh, so that you are poised, all that to say, not only does it not arise suspicion, but you're equipped to slide into those places and actually help the community and at the same time share the gospel. So maybe God is calling you to do something uncomfortable. And I'm, gonna, I'm just going to kind of wipe that if off the table and say, God is calling you to do something uncomfortable. Because Jesus said, whoever would come after me would sit on a bed of roses and be fanned with palm branches and be fed grapes the rest of their life. I'm sure somebody has translated that passage that way already. But it says they would deny himself, take up their cross and follow me. To follow Jesus necessitates a degree of comfortlessness. So when you start uprooting idols in your life, it will be uncomfortable. It's going to change relationships, possibly relationships in your home. It's going to change your interactions with your neighbors. It's going to change your interactions with the things you once held most dear. It doesn't mean that you can't engage in in some of those things, but it means they have to find their proper place under Jesus and his call upon your life. If you will remove your abhorrent idols... From my presence. And do not waver. You're beginning to see the ingredients of real repentance. Return to the Lord. Removal of idols. Do not waver. That means that when you get rid of your idols, you don't just tuck them in the storage closet for a rainy day. Thinking one day I'm just going to come back to this. Um, you know, I might, I might need this again. No, it means that you have to take your, your abhorrent idols, the things that would, you would worship and serve rather than Jesus. You've got to take them out like old Geller and shoot them behind the shed. Bury them in the ground. Leave it alone. And if you think I'm speaking too harshly about things that you love right now, you need to consider the words of Jesus. If your right eye causes you to stumble, what are you supposed to do with it? your right hand we cannot take sin lightly it will kill you for eternity do not waver do not turn aside do not be the, the, this word is also used as like a reed being moved in a current don't be easily swayed by the forces around you saying those things aren't so bad they might not be bad to everybody else but for you But for you, they take a position in your life that they ought not have. And you need to be rid of them so that Christ will get the glory. Then you can swear as the Lord lives that there is an allegiance declaration that God is God alone. Real repentance is a return to God, leaving off of sin, a change of heart, a change of mind, a change of affections. 
Saying, as the Lord lives. This is a saying, all those other gods that I was fiddling with, they're false gods. They don't bring me satisfaction. They don't bring me identity. They don't bring me joy like Jesus does. In truth, justice, righteousness, that our our proclamation of allegiance to the Lord must be true. It must be rooted in love towards neighbor, justice, righteousness, obedience before God. But this is the coolest thing about this passage. Are you ready? It's the end of of verse 2. The great then, right? All of these ifs. If you return to me, if you get rid of your idols, if you don't waver, if you swear as the Lord lives, then what? The nations will be blessed. I've never else seen this in the Bible. I know it's there. I just I found other places doing my, my research. But there is a connection between a repentant people and a missional people. A repentant people who are repenting of sin and a people on mission for God in the world. You see, all of these, if you, return, if you would just repent, then the nations will be blessed. That this is the great purpose of Israel. Do you remember how God called Abram Ur of the, out of the, Ur of the Chaldeans? It's just fun to say. Out of a city. He said to him, and in you, in your offspring, all of the families of the earth will be blessed. That God's design for the people of Israel has always been oriented toward the nations. God's design for the church has always been oriented to the nations. To those who have not yet heard and those who have not yet believed. Then the nations will be blessed by him and will boast in him. Other translations say, and they will glory in him. As you repent, because one of the things that happens as you shoot your idols and you begin to live wholeheartedly for Christ, all of a sudden that which once seemed impossible and too uncomfortable and as a no way I would ever do that, when Jesus is Jesus in your life, when he's Lord, then you say there's no other way but to go that way. There's no other way but to trust and obey the single old hymn. And the nations will be blessed. By a repentant people. The nations will be blessed by a repentant people. But what happens when Christians refuse to repent? When we cherish our idols. So much so that our hands are calcified around them. So that we will never let them go. What we showcase to the world is not the glorious appeal of the forgiving Lord Jesus who died upon the cross and rose again. What we show to the world is arrogant hypocrisy. And even people who are lost and dead in their sins, that's repugnant to them. There's no sweet scent of Christ to that. When Christians refuse to let go of their idols. Same thing for Israel and Judah. They refused to let go of their idols and therefore they turned their back on God's mandate to them, to the nations. The second half of this passage, three and four, address Judah and Jerusalem. So there's a change in audience. So while there's this great invitation of the displaced Northern kingdom. There's a gracious invitation saying, if you return to me, come. You who have been in exile for a hundred years, come back to me. 
Now he turns to Jerusalem and Judah who have not yet experienced exile. They've not yet been removed from their homes and planted in Babylon for 70 years. They haven't yet experienced the judgment of God upon them for their rebellion. And what does he say? And there is a linkage here between the real repentance modeled and the deep need revealed to Jerusalem and Judea. He says to them, these people who have not yet, who are currently residing in their sins, he says, break up the unplowed ground. Do not sow among the thorns and circumcise yourselves to the Lord. He uses two images that are going to be very familiar to them. That as ground that is not cultivated, as not plowed, becomes compacted and hard, so their hearts have been compacted and hardened to God. They tread over true affection to the living God for the sake of their idols that their hearts had grown so calloused and hard to God that they needed an iron steel plow blade to come through and create furrows in sin-hardened hearts. So there's a connection between the outward reality of real repentance at the beginning of the chapter and the deep need for heart change. In verses 3 and 4. That real repentance happens when the plow blade hits the heart. When there is a breaking over sin. When there is a breaking over rebellion. When there is a breaking done by the hands of God sometimes. To awaken us. This new beginning begins with a breaking up of the old. The image of circumcision, right? Circumcision is the, the means by which the sign of the covenant that was enacted upon men to show that this is the covenant people. Look at Genesis chapter 17, for example. And what it was supposed to show is that as the, the, the foreskin is cut away, don't get all squirmy on me. Just, just deal with it. It's in the Bible. You'll be okay. Be over in a second. There's a joke there. Heard all the little boys of Israel. Be over in a second. Uh, that as, as that outward reality, it shows the need that the, the hard, calloused, encapsulated heart needs to be cut away. That there has to be a removal of the old and a gifting of the new. That the old, unfeeling, dull heart has to be removed. So it's not just circumcision as an outward act, but remove the foreskin of your hearts. Men of Judah and residents of Jerusalem, you need a heart change, God says. And so if you're here this morning and you've never trusted the Lord or you've been walking away from Him, don't just look at verses 1 and 2 and say, I need to check these boxes and then I'll be good with God. Because if you're able to check those boxes truly and authentically, then 3 and 4, verses 3 and 4 have happened to you. But what you need is a removal of the old. You need a spiritual miracle to happen within you. C.H. Spurgeon has a great little, it's not that little, but a great little book called The Soul Winner, where he's talking about evangelism. And he says evangelism is a call to resurrection. That we're going out to raise the dead by the power of God. That until we see the reality that we are dead in our sins and trespasses, 
then repentance is going to be a dream. And the gospel isn't going to be that great of news. But throughout the Bible, we see there is a need for the old to go and the new to come. And your greatest infirmity is your sin that has killed your heart. You are spiritually dead if you are outside of Christ today. You're spiritually dead. Let me jump, jump a couple places. I, Ezekiel, I want to call every prophet Isaiah today. All is Isaiah. Ezekiel 36, 26. Talking about this is the, the hope of the new covenant. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will take away your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Dear ones, what you need is a spiritual heart transplant. We are not in the behavior modification business. We are not in telling you to be better, try harder, fly higher, tie up your own spiritual bootstraps, yada, 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 yada. We're saying look to God who can resurrect the dead. He can change your heart. He can free you from that addiction. He can liberate you from the grip of that idol. He can set you free. He can make you live just as he called out to Lazarus in the tomb, the dead man, four days in the tomb. He said, Lazarus, come out. If he can do that, what can he do in you? Don't look to your own strength, but look to his. Romans 2, 28 and 29. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly and true circumcision. There it is again, is not something visible in the flesh. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is of the heart by the spirit, not the letter. That person's praise is not from people, but from God. Now, what we're talking about when it says circumcise your hearts, we're talking about you need to be born again. If you have not been born again, dear ones, you are not alive. You're the walking dead. Ephesians 4. Therefore, uh, verse 17, therefore, I say this and testify to you in the Lord. You should no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thoughts. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them and because of the hardness of their hearts. You see that hardness of heart. Just hang on. We're almost there. I promise. They become callous. And gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity for it with a desire for more and more. But that is not how you came to know Christ, assuming you heard about Him and were taught by Him as the truth is in Jesus. Now notice, they've grown hard-hearted. They've grown callous. That's not the way you learned. This is what you learned, the truth in Jesus. To take off your former way of life, verse 22, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires. You have if quit looking to your own life. Quit looking to yourself. The old self is corrupted by deceitful desires. You take that off to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Verse 24, to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. Hard-hearted, callous, what needs to happen? I need a new heart. Don't go be more religious. Don't try to be more spiritual. Say, God, make me alive. Do you understand what I'm saying? Don't try to be more religious. Don't try to give more money. Don't just show up more times thinking that's going to be enough. All those things are great. 
But you need to look to God and say, would you make me alive? Consider what Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. You must be born again. Finally, Colossians 2. You are also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands. So again, here's the imagery, but it's an inward reality of a changed heart. By putting off the body of flesh and the circumcision of Christ, when you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So that God gives you a new heart and gives you new life and is imaged in baptism and you are raised up from the dead. All that to say, if this is you, if you're caught up in worshiping and serving anything but Christ, then I would invite you. You you can come up here and I'll pray with you, but I would invite you to, to look to the Lord and say, would you make me alive? Just would you make me spiritually alive? Because what we are asking for is the greatest miracle that can happen on planet Earth. The miracle of the new birth is a greater miracle than the feeding of the 5,000, 7,000, 1 million. It's a greater miracle than Jesus walking on water, Peter walking on water. It's a greater miracle than casting out legion and all those thousands of pigs. It's a greater miracle than all the miracles in the Bible combined that the dead heart would be made alive by the power of God. And that's the business that God's in today. That's the greatest miracle that can happen this morning. And it can happen today. For you would just look to Christ. If you're for our church and for Christians in the room, wherever you are, whatever your affections might be, maybe you've been living distracted, backsliding, wavering, aimless, I would encourage you to renew your commitment to Christ today. That you would return to Jesus and to Him, not to your activities, not to your own strength not to your own identity, that you would return to Jesus and say, Lord, would you breathe new life into me? Would you renew me? Would you revive me? Would you cause new affections for Jesus to, to, to spring out of me? That the name of Christ would be so much more pleasant today than it was tomorrow, than, they, I mean, than it was yesterday. And you know that's by the power of His grace. May we be a people that's plowed up that the seeds of the gospel might be planted and fruit might be born for the glory of God. Among the nations, a humble, repentant people willing to do and to go where the Lord sends. Let's pray. Lord, we give you glory. We give you thanks. And I pray, Father, that if there's anything that's gone out today that's not of you, that's not helpful, that's not of your spirits, That it would be forgotten, but Lord, I do ask that the things that are true today, that you would inhibit and prohibit the adversary from coming and plucking those seeds off of hard soil. That right now you would plow up hearts, even right now, right now that you would grant new life to those who have never known you. That they would cry out to you for aid and for salvation, for new life, that for your people who have grown dull like the people of Judah and Jerusalem. May they hear the word to break up the unplowed ground. 
The places where they've grown hard and unfeeling toward you. Where they have lived in hypocrisy. Here one thing, tomorrow another. God, would you bring repentance to them? It's all of your grace. Lord, we have no merit to claim. We have no merit to offer. But we come with open hands asking that you would move. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.